to Genesis chapter 49. I invite your attention this morning. We'll be picking up where we left off last time at the end of Jacob's blessing, his uh, testament, we've called it, his word for each of his sons, and in a sense even more for the tribes who would come from those sons and bear their names in the future. Now, having spoken his peace, Jacob comes uh, to death, and in death, uh, in his death, as well as in the death of his son Joseph, there are some lessons that come to us red hot from the scripture this morning. And uh, to help us understand those lessons, we'll also be turning to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, where I'll, we'll pick up there at verse 13. So to Hebrews 11, if you will, please, and maybe put a, a marker there, because we'll take up first at Genesis 49, but we will not take up either one of those passages until first we address ourselves to their ultimate author. So let us pray. Our Father in heaven, it is a mighty thing to turn to your word, for it is the voice of God that is heard. We pray that you will give us grace then to listen with all of our hearts that you will give us attention, that you will give us wisdom and blessing. Teach us what you have to teach us here, our Father, we pray, that we may more faithfully live the life to which you have called us, the life for which you have bought us at the cost of the blood of your own Son. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 49, picking up at verse 29, Jacob now speaking to his sons. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. I find it rather striking, don't you, that uh, Jacob adds that little piece there about, uh, about that place that he wants to be buried, that there I buried Leah. I think that all of our hearts went out to Leah. Leah, you remember the undesirable, undesired wife? Leah, who had at one time to literally buy a night with her own husband from Rachel. How terribly she was neglected by Jacob in her life. Could it now be that Jacob is giving himself to Leah in death in a way that he should have and now realizes he should have in life. I think that entirely likely that that's the very point for the recording of these words that he said about Leah. It's not next to Rachel that he will lie in death, but next to Leah. Picking up verse 33. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face 
and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many days are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were passed, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, if, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshold floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Now, if you would, please skip down with me to verse 22 of that same chapter. Verse 22, we'll read now the account of another death, this time of Joseph. Joseph's death and of his imitation of his father, Jacob's faith. Verse 22. I'm sorry, of Genesis 50, right. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. Now, it's worth noting that he lived 110 years to the Egyptians. 110 years was the perfect lifespan of a man. So they would have taken note of Joseph's years. Now, the Bible's own view of a blessed life is expressed in the next verse, that a man lived to see his children and his children's children. In Joseph's case, it goes even a step further than that. Verse 23. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, uh, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin 
in Egypt. Now to the Bible's own verdict of all of this, Hebrews chapter 11 with me, if you will, please. Hebrews 11, and we'll pick up at verse 13. Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, what's all this talk about land? It's all this talk about land anyway. What's, what's, what's going on? What's the big hang-up about land? This is, after all, not the first time that we've heard this from Jacob. Three times, as a matter of fact, it's come up in Jacob's life in one way or another. He's, he's made a point about the land before. Remember back in chapter 47? Jacob makes Joseph promise, take an oath, in fact, with his hand under his uh, thigh, that is near the organ of procreation, to a, a, an exercise that a, apparently made the oath more binding in some way. I say, Israel made Joseph swear that he would not bury him in Egypt, but take him back to Canaan. Then again in chapter 48, Jacob blesses his son, saying that he, that is Joseph, will also return to the land of his father's. Now we can think back even further when Jacob was leaving Canaan. Remember, God assured him with these words, I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. And to go even further back and remember Jacob's dream before he left Canaan the first time to go to Uncle Laban. Over and again in that dream, God promises to give him the land, to bring him back to the land. Of course, it was a promise that began not with Jacob. This land motif, this theme, goes all the way back in, into early Genesis. Some scholars see it beginning all the way back at the very beginning when God gave the earth to Adam and Eve to possess it and to care for it. For a certainty, we hear all sorts of things, plenty about this, the land with uh, regard to Abraham, Jacob's grandfather. Nor will this theme of the land end with Jacob and with Joseph. It will continue to play a central role in the thinking and in the relationship between God and his covenant people. I understand that, that uh, the Hebrew word for land, Eretz, is the fourth most commonly used word in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. From the promise to Abraham and his seed, to the exodus from Egypt, and the parting of the Jordan River to enter the land, down to the days of the last prophet, we are constantly reading about the land, the land, the land. And the very next book of Scripture, from this one, over to the book of Exodus, we're going to hear about the land. Israel makes her way and fits and starts into the land promised to her father's 
centuries before. Over to the book of Joshua, and you find Israel taking conquest of the land, just as Jacob's prophecy had foretold. The book of Judges is a sad record of infidelity in the land and Israel's own very tenuous hold on the land. As a result, the Philistines more often ruling the land than she did. Then came the early kings who solidify their hold on the land so that at least for a time, they possess all that had been prophesied to Abraham. Alas, it was not to continue that way. The kings fritter away the promises of God, a promised land through unbelief, through rebellion against God, until finally it's taken away from them. Rather, we might say, they are taken away from it and into exile as a punishment for their sin. Now, they come back. At least some of them do. Judah, you remember, returns to the land. They get just a small parcel of it, a tiny little part of it. They build a a temple that holds only a fraction of the glory of the original. Yet even that paltry possession of land will be subject to the powers of the empires around them and will ultimately be taken away from them in AD 70 when Jerusalem is destroyed again, this time by the Romans. And the nation of Israel cease to exist in the land until just recently in 1948 when the Jewish state was created there. Now all of that seems very distant from you, far away from us sitting here in this place today. What does it have to do? What does all this have to do with you and with me and with my children and your children? Surely there must be some importance to this, some relevance of this matter of the land. After all, your Bible still contains prophecies like this. The Lord will set them in their own land, and and another, I will bring them back to the land of their own that I gave to their fathers. And, And then again, I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land I have given them, says Amos. Ah, you say, sure, but those are Old Testament passages. They don't count anymore, don't they? I will grant you this. The whole preoccupation with the land does disappear when you step into the New Testament. Or does it? Think for a minute. Does Jesus have nothing to say that sounds even remotely similar to these passages? Or Paul? Listen to this. Remember that passage back in Psalm 37? The one that says, The meek shall inherit the land. Where have you heard something very similar to that? course. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. 
And the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Paul, too, has something to say about this in Romans chapter 4. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that they would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Or again in Ephesians, where he is exhorting the church's children to obey their parents, he writes this. Honor your father and mother, Paul writes. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Remember back in Exodus 20, the fifth commandment had the promise attached for obedient children to dwell long in the land. Now they are promised the earth. So the promise does go on. According to Jesus and according to Paul, the promise is still true, only now it's changed. I said I would grant you that the preoccupation with the land disappears when we enter the New Testament, because it does. But the fundamental promise, the fundamental promise that God has made still Holds the land, brothers and sisters, has become the earth. It has become the world. God's promise to his people, to Israel, to us, still holds only better. No longer do we look for an inheritance that consists of a little piece of real estate in Palestine. Brothers and sisters, we look to inherit the world, the whole earth. And if we understand Paul's point in Romans correctly, the promise always did mean more than just a parcel of land by the Mediterranean. Paul says that God promised Abraham the world. That land of Canaan then, that land of Canaan was but the sign and seal of the greater promise. A picture of the the new earth, of the whole world. The entire inheritance of man that was lost on account of sin is to be returned to Abraham and to his seed, who the Bible says is us. You and I, the children of our father Abraham. And what is more, Abraham understood that. And Jacob understood that. And Joseph understood that. That's why we read in that passage from Hebrews this morning, the patriarchs understood the great hope of the promise. It wasn't some little strip of land between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. It was the whole world, the new earth. They were seeking a homeland, writes the author of Hebrews, a better country, he says, that is a heavenly one. And that is exactly what the Bible would have us think of the new earth that Christ will establish upon his return. It will be, so to speak, heaven come down. It will be 
the children of God, possessing the whole earth, the perfected earth, the perfected world with perfectly redeemed and transformed bodies. It was precisely for seeing past the sign and seal, seeing past Canaan, seeing behind Canaan, to what Canaan represented, what Canaan stood for, that God commended their faith. And they're still waiting. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all the rest, they're still waiting. They're still waiting in heaven today like we are waiting here on earth today for the coming of the great promise for which we look even this day by faith. Like our fathers before us. We are seeking a homeland. Still looking for the new heavens and the new earth, a better country. And we have God's own promise that we will find it. Along with those who are still waiting to receive what was promised to them. As the scripture says, since God provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They're still waiting, as we are. To put it another way, we, we're all looking for the same thing. We're all still waiting for the very same thing that Jacob was looking for. The very same thing that Jacob had the day he made his son swear, made Joseph swear on oath to bring him back to Canaan. We are looking for the promised land. We are looking for the renewed earth, for the fully redeemed world. And it will come. And on that day, dear flock, your faith will be proven true and will be rewarded along with Abraham's and Isaac's and Jacob's. You will stand shoulder to shoulder with them as the promise to them and to you, the very same promise is fulfilled. Now here's my question for you. Are you living and dying in that faith? Are you following the example of Jacob, bearing witness even in your own funeral plans? to the direction of your hope and the strength of it? Fathers, what will you ask of your sons when the time comes for you to die? And what are you asking of them now? Men, do your, do your children See in you that burning passion? Do they see that singularity of purpose to enter the promised land? Do they see reflected in your eyes, fathers, the celestial city because your eyes are transfixed upon its vision of splendor and more than that on the Lord of that place because you cannot take your eyes completely off of the coming world at any time so that their 
passion for that coming world is ignited in their own little hearts as well? Or do they see you longing and grasping for more of the accolades of this life, of this moment, uh, money and, and goods, your own passion for your own pleasures, your own advancement, maybe, or recognition. How are you, men, living and dying before the eyes of your family, before the eyes of your wife and your sons and daughters, or if you haven't a a biological family, before the eyes of your church family, before your spiritual brothers and sisters and your spiritual sons and daughters. What proof will you give us? What proof will you give us to remember when we close your eyes for you that they were all the while filled with a vision of God's kingdom of God's country and that you were welcoming it from afar you may supply that evidence Fathers, you may supply us all. Mothers, you too. And sons and daughters, boys and girls, you too can supply us with the proof of the bent of your hearts for God's country by training your affections, the love of your heart, and your actions that flowed from it, like Christina Rossetti did. True, Rossetti wrote... True, all our life long we shall be bound uh, to refrain our soul and to keep it low. But what then? For the books we now refrain to read, we shall one day be endowed with wisdom and knowledge. For the music we will not listen to we shall join in the song of the redeemed. For the pictures from which we turn, we shall gaze unabashed on the beatific vision, that is, on the vision of God. For the companionship we shun, we shall be welcomed into angelic society and the communion of the triumphant saints. For the amusements we avoid, we shall join in the supreme jubilee. For all the pleasures we miss, we shall abide and forevermore abide in the rapture of heaven. And if you say that and you live by that, Your children will believe you when you say that you have seen from afar what Rosetti saw in her dream. Once in a dream, I saw the flowers that bud and bloom in paradise. More fair are they than waking eyes have seen in all this world of ours. 
And faint the perfume-bearing rose, and faint the lily on the stem, and faint the perfect violet compared with them. I heard the songs of paradise. Each bird sat singing in its place, a tender song so full of grace. It soared like incense to the skies. Each bird sat singing to its mate, soft cooing notes among the trees. The nightingale herself were cold to such as these. I saw the fourfold river flow, and deep it was with golden sand. It flowed between a mossy land with murmured music, grave and low. It hath refreshment for all thirst, for fainting spirits, strength, and rest. Earth holds not such a draft as this from east to west. The tree of life stood budding there, abundant with its twelvefold fruits. Eternal sap sustained its roots. Its shadowing branches fill the air. Its leaves are healing for the world. Its fruit the hungry world can feed. Sweeter than honey to the taste and balm indeed. I saw the gate called beautiful. And looked, but scarce could look within. I saw the golden streets begin and outskirts of the glassy pool. O harps, O crowns of plenteous stars, O green palm branches many-leaved, I hath not seen, nor ear hath heard, nor heart conceived. I hope to see these things again. But not as once in dreams by night to see them with my very sight and touch and handle and attain to have all heaven beneath my feet for a narrow way that once they trod to have my part with all the saints and with my God. Jacob had that vision. Jacob saw that from afar. And so did Joseph. And to this very day, though Joseph is dead, yet he speaks. And just as he said them on his own deathbed, now this minute Joseph turns to you, O Israel, and says... God will surely visit you and bring you to the land he swore to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob. Amen.